All right. Uh, Brother Brian, come on up here. This is where we get to grill him. No, just kidding. You can grill me. You can grill me. All right. Well, Brother Brian, first off, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for uh, just sacrificing your time. And uh, it's quite a privilege for us to be here and for you to share one of your kids. Looks like you're going back with only one child now. (laughs) And so we've had a good time with the Crawford family. So first off, um, this is more just a general question. Uh, Brian, what's been your experience in the church as it relates to race? I know that's just a big general question. Yeah, and and guys, pardon me for kind of every once in a while whipping my phone out. I took a lot of notes and just, uh, you know, somebody said my mind works like an engineer, and and they're right. It's very scattered. (laughs) (laughs) And so so I I like to just kind of take notes just to make sure I stay kind of within the framework that I I, I set out to stay within. Um, To talk a little bit about this particular topic, I'll just just say that that worship um, or, or Church experience for us has been uh, one of diversity from the very beginning. Um, my, my family um, has kind of run the gambit in terms, of, in terms of worship and in terms of churches. We, we um, have been, um, I grew up in a um, charismatic church, prosperity gospel-centric, um, predominantly black. Um, we moved out of that church into missionary Baptist, predominantly black again uh, we've 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 i spent time campus crusading uh campus crusade for christ of course on college campuses predominantly white uh, there i'll never forget there was one particular point where where i had invited a lot of my black friends to worship at this particular uh, event that campus crusade was was um hosting and and my black friends were chuckling the entire time at it <laughs> it was like, what is going on, man? What, what is this music that we're singing? And, and I just, I, I took, I took so much offense to it because I was, of course, I love, I, I love, I love the, the the tradition of black gospel and I love black worship. But I was just saying to myself, man, but we're still, we're just singing about Jesus, you know. And and so, and so I've always kind of found throughout my life, my walk of salvation, I've always kind of been the one that was in the middle of the road when I would be around my deeply conservative Baptist friends who would, you know, cringe at the ideal of uh, repetition being in a song. And I would say to myself, but hey, man, they're, they're worshiping Jesus. And they're, you know, it, it, yeah, it's more emotive. It's more, it's probably more expressive in this particular realm. But at the same time, I think we need, I think we need the mental and we need the expressive. That's why you got Psalms and Proverbs right next to each other. And, and so, and so we. Look at Psalm one eighteen. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, um, and so that that's been our experience. We've kind of always been um, in the middle of the road, so to speak, as it relates to um, our, our church experiences and our life of worship. Yeah, yeah. talking to Brian a little bit over lunch and um, talking about just some of the uh, things and uh, experiences and places that God has taken him and Candy um, where they've been able to speak to different audiences where God has opened those doors. So uh, if you don't mind, just share with us how you're encouraged um, in this topic as it relates to the church and race um, just overall. Yeah, I'm in, I'm encouraged by the idea that we are being uh, forced into some things that 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 I believe God desires for us. He he prays John 17 for unity, mm. and and the church is oftentimes reluctant to to move at the beckon of God's call. Um, you see the same thing happening in the Book of Acts, where Jesus says before he leaves, "You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, you know, in, in Samaria." Um, Judea, the other most, uh, the, and, and, out, and all throughout the earth. You will be my witnesses. And then you kind of see for the first 10 chapters of Acts, they're like, yeah, we'll get around to it. You know, <laughs> but Jerusalem's really, really comfortable, and we're really, really loving Jerusalem. And then, and then Stephen gets stoned, and Acts chapter 11 makes a, makes a point to say that it was Stephen's stoning and persecution that creates the scattering of the church, right? And so it's the idea that when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, 
you have to take that to the bank, whether we go kicking and screaming or not. He's going to create witnesses throughout the world. And the same can be said when Jesus prays for unity. He prays for unity. He says, Father, make them one. We will be one. Amen. Whether, <laughs> whether he has to cancel some churches or whether he has to bring, you know, uh, bring persecution that draws us closer but he will create oneness. And so I'm encouraged, even when people are kind of screaming at the sky falling, I'm encouraged sometimes looking at, you know, the church being put on trial in our culture and the church um, having to navigate what it looks like to not be top dog in our culture, what it looks like to not have the favor of the world around us, what it looks like to, you know, it used to be a time where we were socially, it, was, it provided social credibility to say I was a part of a church. Now that time no longer exists. You know, you tell somebody you're a part of the church in this particular climate, even in a place like Huntsville, it's progressive enough where you say, hey, yeah, I go to church, and they're kind of like, yeah, okay, that's, I guess that's your thing. Do, do what you do. So there's no longer any social credibility associated with it, or at least it's declining. And, and that encourages me because it forces us to really think deeply about our about the gospel that we preach and proclaim, and it forces us to really think about what's essential in this gospel. What's, real, what's really the nuts and bolts of this gospel? You know, when you're, a top, when, you're, when you're the top dog, you can be picky. You can be picky. Ah, I don't like that music. I'm going to go to another church, right? <laughs> that, that song, oh, it's just something about that song that doesn't do it for me. I'm going to go to another church. I can't believe pastor preached that poor sermon. I'm out of here. But as those kind of privileges fall to the wayside, what the gospel is and what the church is becomes a lot crisper and a lot more crystal clear to us. And so I'm excited about that because I think that's, what, that's the, the impetus, if you will, for City Light Church. You know, City Light Church was birthed in 2016. It was birthed right smack dead in the middle of, you know, one of the most divisive times in uh, the last 30, 40 years uh, of this country. Um, and it was in that moment where, you know, where Vicksburg, in Vicksburg, Mississippi, of all places, there were people, white, black, looking around and saying, man, I think, I think whatever's going on outside of this, outside of us or in this world is not what Jesus wants. And so it was just in that particular time that, that God allowed us to come together. And so that's why I think that's why our church make demographic is what it is in terms of this kind of 60-40 split. And, you know, I mean, you've been there, and um, it's not supposed to work that way in Vicksburg, you know, but I think it's working that way because it's, um, it's being forced, the culture is forcing us into some things that God is calling us to. Yeah. You know that uh, I offended my in-laws for you, brother. <laughs> Not really, but this summer we were heading to Dallas for the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, we stayed there Saturday night, and so they just planned that we would go to church with them the next morning. And I said, well, actually, we're going to go to church uh, in Vicksburg, and we are in Hattiesburg. And they said, well, how are you going to do that? We're going to get up early, <laughs> and we're going to hit the road. And so, but it was great. We were so glad to be there. Well, one more from me, then I'll take some from the congregation. What are some tangible, practical things we as a church can do in loving others? Yeah, yeah. This was a really, really good question when I saw this with Steve. Um, I'll say commit to the long haul. Commit to the long haul. And so so when when I say that... uh, I, I just simply mean that it's it's going to be really, really easy to kind of treat this as trendy. You know, it's in vogue right now to talk about unity. It's in vogue to talk about bridging the gap in, in, in race, ethnicity, class, culture. Um, and eventually it's going to not be in vogue, you know. Eventually, you know, a few more people in our culture will join, will culture will join hands, we'll sing Kumbaya for a season, and, and then we'll go back to business as usual. And I just want to say that I just want to say to continue to hold the line because Jesus' prayer has not um, has not gone anywhere. His prayer for unity is one that has existed throughout the ages. He expects us to, to continue to fight for that. Ephesians 2 hasn't gone anywhere. 
And Paul tells us that, 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 that Christ, that through Christ, Christ being our peace, he's the source of this peace that, that, that's created between not only God and man, but between man and man. And he says that the dividing wall has been torn down as a result of what Christ has done, creating one new man. That, that appeal, that reality hasn't gone anywhere. And so continue to fight for unity. Continue to, ask, continue to ask the hard questions about your church in terms of saying, hey, so what are we doing to, to reach you know, our neighborhood? I don't, I don't make an appeal to you to say if your neighborhood is 97% white, that you should be 50-50, you know, African-American and, and white or African-American, Latino, white, Asian. If your neighborhood is 97% white, if the, if the two-mile radius around you is 98% white, I don't make that appeal. But if the two-mile radius around you has diversity, then fight for diversity. Fight for diversity. Do not settle with just the notion of, well, I mean, they're going to, you know, they're going to worship the way they're going to worship, and we're going to worship the way we're going to worship. You know, I mean, one of, the things that, one of the things that stands out to me that I talk about all the time is John 17. Jesus, when he is making that appeal for oneness, he makes the appeal for oneness based on the assumption that if they are one, then the world will know that you sent me. And so one of the greatest reasons, one of the greatest motivations for creating unity in your church it's missions. It's evangelism. And, so, and what's, so, what's so odd to me is that the church, you know, whether it be in Baptist life, evangelical life, beyond, what's so odd to me is that the church is so driven by missions. You know, when you talk about, I mean, we're, we're like mission, mission, mission. We're going over here. We're going over there. We're going over here. We're, we're mission driven and yet have very little concern and regard for unity. But one of the motivations for unity is for the purpose of advancing the gospel. Jesus said, when they, Jesus says one of the greatest ways that you can win disciples is when they look in and they see a group of people that's together that has no business being together. They say, how did that happen? So they're now intrigued. They're now drawn to this gospel powerful enough to unite people that are under normal circumstances would not be united. And so if we really care about missions, if we're that passionate about missions, should we not be that passionate about unity? Should we not pursue it? And so I'll say just, you know, in, current, in terms of just being practical, you know, a couple of things. One is get, get comfortable with discomfort. Get comfortable with discomfort. Every single person that walks in our church, they know. They know. Because we tell them, right? We let them know. This is going to be a bumpy ride for you. If you're used, if you're used to church a certain way, this is going to be a bumpy ride for you. Because there's going to be some things that happen on Sunday morning that you're going to be like, I would have never did that in my church back home. And then the guy that's next to you is going to be like, oh, man, I'm finally home. And then 10 minutes later, he's going to be saying, I would have never did that in my church back home. And you're going to say, man, I just feel just like this is my family again. And the reason that happens is because we are so radically different in our cultures and in our expressions and in our styles that in order for us to love all of the people in our neighborhood well, we have to make somebody at some point uncomfortable. Does that make sense? If I, make, if, I make you, if I make you comfortable the entire time, then you know what I've tailored church around? You. Now, what we've done is we've changed the language, right? And so we say, well, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. So, so it's not you making me comfortable. We're just doing things that are biblically accurate in order to worship Jesus, and I don't care what we do, as long as we're doing things biblically accurate in order to worship Jesus. But in reality, it's about us. Your expression of worship, and I know people will get upset with me when I say this, your expression of worship is not 100% biblical. It is your expression we understand that when we go to Asia, when we go to Latin America, we say, okay, guys, we got to leave some of this stuff behind, right, because we're going to the mission field. But we don't understand that we're in a mission field. 
And so we don't say to ourselves in the missions field, okay, we're going to leave some of this stuff behind because my neighbors over here didn't go to that church growing up. So we're going to leave some of these things behind in order to love our neighborhood well. And as long as we remain biblical, we're going to be okay with that. Does that make, does that make sense? Now, that might be uncomfortable. It might be uncomfortable because, hey, who knows? Maybe somebody might start clapping on this one, right? <laughs> you know, somebody might, somebody, somebody might start doing this. Uh-oh. You know, no, that, but, but guess what? That's okay because that's loving your neighbor well by allowing that expression of worship to exist in your space. And your neighbor needs to grow uncomfortable as well. We, we call it basically the theology of the cross meeting the theology of the church. Everybody dying to self. Does that make sense? I know I'm, I know I'm going on, but I'm going to say one more thing about that. The idea, so, so we talked, you know, 30 years ago, there, the church planning movement kind of created what they called the homogeneous unit principle. I learned about it, you know, in, in, the, in the handful of seminary classes I've taken, right? So, so I've probably taken like, I don't know, I can count them on one hand. But, but I've studied a lot, okay? So, so let, me just, let, me just, let me back up and let you know that I'm not just up in Ramble, okay? I've studied a good bit. But the handful of seminary classes I took, one of the classes that I took was about the homogeneous unit principle. It was part of the, part of the class. Now, the idea is that church planning, if you really want your church to grow, what you should do is you should go and you should plan a church, and you should plan a church basically tailored towards a particular group of people. Don't try to attract everybody. Try to attract a particular group of people, you know, 30-year-old 30, 30 um professionals, white. Literally, this is the principle, right? Um, and, 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 and that's who you attract. That's who you draw. Okay, here's the problem with that. Number one, Jesus isn't praying for that. He isn't praying that a church be created where everybody without him could still get along. He's literally praying for a church that the only way those people could come together and get along is with him. But secondarily, the other thing about that is that it creates, not all the time, but it creates a lot of times selfishness in the parishioner. Because what the parishioner does is they come in expecting things to be tailored for them and them alone. They aren't learning how to die to self. And so the church should express the culture of death within it. If our church is fighting over song selections, we ain't dying. Are you tracking with me? If my church is fighting over whether or not we're going to use pianos or organs, we ain't dying. If we can't, if we can't die to our instrument choice, Lord knows we can't die to anything else. So within, within, the, within the church, we should be propagating a culture of the cross and teaching everybody to lay down their preferences as they walk through for the sake of seeing a united, a united body worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Yep. Well said. And a quick word about that. When we were at City Light Church, when we came in, the first song was just really good. And I was like, they redid this hymn. And then Brian gets up there and gives that word about how we need to die to self and how we need to put our preferences aside. And I'm thinking, amen, that's right, brother. And then the next song is like, I'm like, who chose this one? <laughs> and so I'm like, well, I'm glad I was listening. And so, yeah, it's a good word. Well, we've got some good questions, and I'll try to tackle some of these with you. Um, yes, but, sir. But this first one's for you. Um, <laughs> yes, no, sir. Um, why did God create different races? Mm. That's a good question. It's a great question. So, so God, create, God did not create different races. Let's, just, let's start there. He didn't create different races. He created one race. Mm. One race. We all um, come from the race of Adam. God Amen. created different ethnicities, different nations, different cultures. Some cultures um, or some nations find themselves uh, closer to the sun, and thus God in his brilliance and biology um, you, you did, did wondrous works to allow their skin to tolerate such sun. 
Um, and in that, and in and in that culture, there was also uh, a development of dialect, and there was a development of 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 arts, a development of expressions. So what I mean, so what I mean by that is, so there is one race, but there are different ethnicities. Question then becomes, why did God create different ethnicities? Why did God allow for different ethnicities and different nations? You, when you start looking at Genesis, you see the Tower of Babel. It almost looks like, you know, well, this thing just was sinful and messed up from the beginning. Man and his pride and his arrogance said, hey, let's, let's build a tower to the heavens. And, and in so doing, God confused the nations and shifted their languages, Right? But here's what God always does, because he's a sovereign God. He is always working things after his own purposes, right? He uses the sins of men to allow a Savior to go to the cross and die for the world, in order that the world, through the sins of men, putting that Savior on the cross might be saved, right? He does the same thing with ethnicity. So here, out of pride and arrogance, man decides to create a tower to the heavens, But then from that point on, you move forward through the story, and as you move forward through the story, you see Christ come, and Christ brings salvation to the nations. But when he brings salvation to the nations, he sends his spirit. And notice what happens in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, when he sends, sends his spirit, the spirit falls on the people that are gathered in the upper room praying for his arrival, and then they begin to speak what? In other languages as the Spirit gives him utterance to speak. And notice what God doesn't do. He does not, as a result, as a, as a demonstration or as a manifestation of his Spirit's arrival, he does not unify language. He just gives the ability for the church to understand one another. So he gives the power of tongues. And so now I'm speaking in a dialect that I've never spoken in before, but I'm speaking in a dialect that I've never spoken in before so that the brother who knows that dialect can say, I understand you now. And it's not just, I, I, don't, think, I, don't, think the, I don't think this gift of tongues is not just simply a kind of random set aside. I think it's God's beginning the work of bringing these diverse nations and cultures and arts and expressions and languages together. The, spirit, the, the, the gift of tongues is the example by which we see that. But the fact that he does not unite language, the fact that he allows language to remain diverse and he just teaches us how to deal with it and understand it is a foreshadow of what he's doing in the church, which is he's not going to change me in terms of removing my culture, snatching my culture away, snatching, snatching my skin color away, snatching you know, my language away, my dialect, my slang. He's just going to teach my white brother how to understand me by the Spirit. And the same is going to be said for my white brother and sister. You know, we don't preach uniformity at City Light. We preach unity. We preach unity. We want you to continue to, you know, do what you do. We got people that love to hunt and fish. We got people that hate hunting and fishing. And that's all right. But the people that love to hunt and fish, we're going to send, we want the people that hate hunting and fishing out of love for their brother to join them on a hunting and fishing trip. You understand that? Because it's learning how to what? Die to self, and it's learning how to allow the spirit to do the work of uniting cultures. And what's crazy is that what we see in the very beginning of, uh, with Genesis with the, with the sin of man being uh, what, what propagates the, the, dispersion of, uh, the dispersion of people, now all of a sudden becomes this beautiful picture in Revelations, where now every tribe, every nation, every tongue, all these different languages that were created out of sin now have been redeemed and are being used to express worship to God. And so God has purpose in this ethnicity. God has purpose in these nations that he's created. And it goes all the way down to the revelations where he's creating this beautiful kind of mosaic of the entire world and throughout the entire history of the world, worshiping him in all of these different styles and cultures and languages and colors and shapes. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. I don't know. Ask Steve. Ask Steve. 30 seconds, ma'am. <laughs> so in, in today's society, we are told and encouraged to be tolerant. Mm-hmm. What is the difference about what you are preaching and tolerance? Yeah. 
Um, so tolerance, I think, there, I think tolerance has a place as long as it toes the, toes the line of morality, God's law, God's moral law, right? And so, what I, and so what I mean by that, so the gospel, Acts chapter 15, when the, when the, when the Jerusalem council convenes um, and they begin to say, hey, so we got these new folks, right? And they're not like us, don't do things like us, come from, you know, come from these pagan, pagan uh, idolatrous cultures, um, but God is moving amongst them. So what should we do, right? How do we, how do we, how do we, how do we still remain the church? The instruction that the apostles give to send back to, to the folks that the Gentile churches is not, okay, well, here, here's the sheet music that we got here in Jerusalem, and here's the, you know, here's the style of dress that we got here in Jerusalem, and here's the, you know, they don't go through the line in terms of creating this unified, not unified, but this uniform group that assimilates to their culture. They streamline the gospel. That's the only thing they send back with them. It's like here, the gospel. And they send the gospel, and so the gospel is what goes. And what the gospel is able to do is the gospel is able to redeem our people. And with that redemption of people comes the redemption of their cultures. That's why you got organs in church. Jerusalem didn't have organs. Are you tracking? Jerusalem didn't have pianos. No, I know, I know it feels that way, you know, after you've, after you've had it for a while, right? You just feel like, well, Jerusalem must have had this. You know, it's the same way with the KJV. We say, well, if it was good enough for Paul, you know. No, Paul didn't have the KJV. You know, so, so a lot of these things that we've adopted as gospel truth, right, are reflections of what we've received, the blessing that we've received of this portable gospel. This gospel that is portable and mobile and tight enough to go into any culture, any nation, and transform it. And so, and so when, we talk about, when we talk about tolerance, what we're saying is, is that I'm not, going to, I'm not going to destroy, or I'm not going to force you to assimilate into who I am. I, I mean, hey, if, you, if you're like super uncomfortable with wearing jeans, just be uncomfortable wearing jeans. We got no problem with that. Go ahead and wear your slacks. No problem with that. But, I, but I'm not going to force you into that. But at the same time, I'm not going to say, okay, well, we're so tolerant that whatever the culture says, we just allow. And so, you know, God's law says this is the sexual ethic that he has prescribed. I'm not going to say, well, we're tolerant. So come on in with whatever sexual ethic that you have. Because, no, the reason he created that sexual ethic is for our flourishing. The same reason why he streamlined the gospel was for our flourishing of the nations, is the same reason why he created boundaries of moral law for the flourishing of nations. And so we're not going to disrupt either side on that. Does that make sense? That's good. And I want to pick up, uh, if you need a drink, yeah, brother, man, I, I got that red there cup we go. there for awesome. you. Yeah. And there's water in that red cup, by the way. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> but just to add... Tolerance. Tolerance. <laughs> Just to add to what uh, Brother Brian was saying, we think about how, why did God create different ethnicities. Um, we have to remind ourselves that, again, um, God's original design, his original plan was perfect. We're the ones that have thwarted his design. Mm-hmm. We're the ones who have uh, ups, upset and rebelled against his plan. And so just like Brother Brian was saying, when we look at Revelation, we see where everything is going, and we look around the um, throne room, and we see all the nations worshiping. This is when our brother Thabiti says, this is when it's appropriate to say, oh, my God, mm-hmm. look at what God has done. Mm-hmm. And it's beauty through diversity. It's beauty through creativity. It's beauty when we look at what God has done. Because if we say, why, if we are upset with more than one, then we could even take that a step further and say, well, why do we serve a triune God? Mm -hmm. And so we have a perfect triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We see diversity, we see creativity, and we see most of all, beauty. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to ask one more written, and well, there's some more written, but I'm going to see if anybody has one out there. In the congregation, uh, this one uh, I'm going to defer again to you, Brother Brian. Okay. Um, what does the black community expect the white Christian conservative to do? And there's a part B to this. Um, how can we work with people when they seem to? Um, I like the way they put. They seem to. They seem to always come from a perspective of extremism on both sides. Mm-hmm. So, 
Um, what does the black community expect the white Christian conservative to do? And part B, how can we work with people when they seem to always come up from a perspective of extremism mm-hmm. on both sides? Yeah, that is a great question. I don't know why I'm looking at it like I need to read it again. <laughs> I think I'm stalling. Um, the... So, so part, part, of this, part of this requires um, um, us to have uh, bigger ears than, we, than, than mouths um, on both sides, on both sides. Um, I think a lot of the discussion, to be, if I'm frank, I think most of the time we talk past each other way more than we realize. Um, and so part of this part of this requires much bigger ears. The in terms of what it, you know, I'm I'm not the delegate for the black community, and so and so I I, I want to caution you. I want to caution you here. Um, that's part that's part of, that's part of the the issue with uh you know kind of working through uh, majority minority um, issues is that majority um, typically some or at least sometimes in my in, in my experience in, in dealing with majority minority context is that majority um you know s- tends to see themselves as free thinkers but then you know they think that minorities have like delegates right that speak for the minority does that make sense and don't understand that minority is just as diverse and has just as uh, just as many voices that differ and disagree and don't see eye to eye, and, and so there is no delegate. You know, the, the Dr. King kind of delusion is, is, I think, is what's kind of created that in our culture where there was this spokesperson that was speaking on behalf of certain issues, and they became the voice, right? But, but, black, but black culture, black America has a diversity of voices, so I'm not going to speak for all of black America when I say this, but I will say this. Um, accept or rather tell... It, Face our history. Face our history together. The one of the things that irritates, you know, my kin. I'm talking about, you know, black grandfather just passed here um, this year, a couple of months ago, 102 years old, uh, lived his entire life in Marion, Alabama. Um, and and you know, and a mother. Um, who is now 60, 67 years old, um, lived, lived all of her childhood in Marion, Alabama, and several other kinfolk living in Birmingham, Alabama, and, and, you know, and folks that were part of the great migration to Detroit, Michigan, and Saginaw, Michigan, uh, when black folk were trying to get out of Alabama. Um, one of the things that tends to kind of irritate them is when um, we don't tell the truth about our history. And what I mean by that is we say things like, well, you know, I mean, sure enough, we had our disagreements back then, but we all got along. Now, they may nod when you say that, but let me just tell you, that ain't, they're, they're doing this on the inside. They might not tell you that, but they told us that. They told all of us that all the time, endlessly. And so, and so it was not, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like a situation, and, and let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me back up and say that I'm not saying that, it, that, that you are responsible for this, okay? All right? So I don't, wanna, I, don't want, I don't want you to be feeling like you're in the hot seat when I say this. I'm talking about the dynamic of the people that spoke of the past that say, oh, man, yeah, hey, these things were, things were you know, Hey, we, we still had, we, we were doing good, and everybody loved Jesus, and yeah, yeah, we might not saw eye to eye, and we might have been segregated, but, you know, we were okay. Let me, let, let, me, let me share what that sounds like and feels like to them, right? Sounds like and feels like an abusive husband, right, who gets in public and says to, him, and says to his wife, you know, who he's abused, well, I know we've had some tough times, but we've had some good ones, too. Right? Are you, tra- are you tracking with that? And the wife will kind of nod and, you know, and yeah, I guess. When in reality she's saying, no, my life has been a living you know what. 
Are you tracking with that? And so, and so for, for, for a lot of my older African-American brothers and sisters, what they long for oftentimes is truth-telling. That's what they long for, is let us just face it together, you know. That's why, that's why you see them so uh, weep so desperately or so, so feverishly when, when these museums are erected. You know, Mississippi just opened up a museum last year, the Mississippi uh, Museum of Civil Rights. It's, ph- it's a phenomenal museum. We'll bring you to tears. We took our whole church, packed a bus, and we said, hey, um, today is a day. We called it a day of biblical justice. And you know what we did? Went to the Civil Rights Museum that morning, went and had some pizza together, Sal and Mookie's in Jackson, Mississippi, hung out, talked about what we saw. And then we left Sal and Mookie's, and we went to the Capitol Hill steps to pray for the unborn because there was a prayer vigil that night. Now, those things, the culture will not allow you to bring them together, right? They're going to say, oh, wait a second, that's social justice warrior liberal stuff over there at that Civil Rights Museum, right? Or that's over there, that left, or that red, red, right wing extremism with the abortion issue over there. No, 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 no. These, these are just biblical things. So we're going to smack them right dead in the middle. We're going to bring a sandwich together to show you that this is just biblical things we're caring about, right? We're going to do both of them on the same day. Yes, ma'am. I have a question about the law and common. My dad, who's 84 years old, was born in Greenwood, Mississippi. Yes, ma'am. Uh, and when I talk to my dad, I talk to him in regards to the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, ma'am. And until we become born again, the red blood of Jesus Christ only thing that's going to change the hearts of people. Yes, ma'am. If not, we will continually make a race feel guilty. Yes, ma'am. Because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. Yes, ma'am. And until we live in that, we're going to continually live back in Greenwood, Mississippi in 1930-something. <laughs> my, my dad, it's that blood. Yes, ma'am. You know, and people did things wrong because our hearts. So it's not about a white race or whatever race. It's the heart of men. Jesus called it out. He said the heart of men is deceitful yes, and really wicked. And until we understand that, I'm going to be pointing fingers, but I'm not going to do that because it's got blood. And when people get born again, I tell you, then we can be some Samaritans. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I, I would I would concur with that. I mean, it's the it's the reason it's the reason why, you know, getting back to my you know 102 year old grandfather, it's the reason why he he loved like he loved. Um, it's the reason why he didn't operate in retaliation. You know, he was, you know, my mom marched in Selma, Mississippi, or Marion, Alabama, rather, with Dr. King. You know, I mean. They, they operated on this idea that love did conquer all. You know, Dr. John Perkins says it all the time, love is the final fight. They operated on this notion that love truly was the final fight. When I talk about truth-telling, I'm not talking about harboring resentment. When I, what I'm talking about, for example, this is, this, I'll give you this example, right? This is not a popular example, okay? I'm just going to go ahead and set the, set the stage right now. But Steve is not responsible for this example, all right? So y'all don't hold this against Steve. Hold us against me. I'm about to leave in the morning. So, so one of the things that, that a lot of folks don't understand, right, that, that, rub, that, that one side is like, what in the world? And the other side is like, I don't even understand what, what, how this is a big deal, is the slogan, make America great again. A lot of people are like, what's the big deal? We're trying to make America great again. I don't, I don't even... I don't even get what we're talking about right now. Why are we fussing about this? When I talk about truth-telling, what I'm talking about is that you have to understand that when you say something like that, that there is a wide audience that America has not been that great for. And when they hear Make America Great Again, they immediately relive the past of that America. And so I'm not saying don't forgive. I'm not saying you shouldn't forgive. I'm not saying that the blood doesn't overcome. But what I'm saying is is that when we're we're talking about uniting, we have to tell the truth about our story. Now, one of the reasons that Germany was able to get over what they got over is because they told the truth really, really fast about their story. 
They were like, hey, okay, listen, this was crazy what we just did, right? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna build some museums, and we will never do this again. We're, we're, we're going to make sure that people come here and witness this, right? We're not going to hide from it. We're not going to shy away from it. People need to know that what, th- what happened here should never happen again. On the flip side, what happened in America was actually the total opposite. What we did is instead of actually saying, this is crazy, we relinquished it. I don't want to let this go, but okay, you're going to let me, you're going to take it from me. We literally had to go to war, right, civil war, and then once we went to civil war, we went to a reconstruction period, and there was a period of 12 years where, where slaves were free, and so there was an opportunity for them to actually you know, do some things and, and take some votes, and all of a sudden now you see black politicians, Hiram Revels in Mississippi became the first black U.S. senator during the reconstruction period, right? We had a black sheriff in Vicksburg, first black sheriff in Vicksburg, the only black sheriff in Vicksburg because in the inauguration of that black sheriff, he got ran out of town, never to be seen again. And so it's that kind of truth-telling that allows everybody just to heal and say, okay, hey, yeah, no, America wasn't always great for all of us, but we can make it great. Let's, let's move forward. But when we, you know, it's just like in a marriage. You can talk about forgiveness all day long in a marriage, but you know what you need to hear more than anything? Just a simple acknowledgement of, yeah, I did really do that. And, that, and no, it was not good. And, I, and that's, I think that's what I'm trying to get to. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say revoke forgiveness by, by no means, by no means. As a matter of fact, Matthew 18 calls us, in, calls us in such a way to forgive that withholding it brings us to the place where we're the sinner now, that we literally become the sinner, we literally become the offender by withholding that forgiveness. That's what the whole story about the king and his great ransom or, or his great pardon that he gives to the servant. And then the servant goes and tells his other friend that owes him 10 bucks, hey, you better pay me my money. No, what ends up happening is he becomes the offender because of his inability to let go when the king is forgiving him so much. So we're on the same page as it relates to that. Yep. Just to add a couple thoughts to that, um, I'm not a black man, so I can't answer that uh, uh from my experience, but for me, a take home is kind of bringing it back down to the personal level is because, um, you know, just to think about this, like, well, I want to change uh, the evangelical church or I want to change the United mm. States. And I realize I can't do all mm. these things. And so for me, I just think about the relationships I'm in mm-hmm. and how can I be faithful in those relationships. And for me, a point of conviction and stirring is, well, when I hear that racial joke, I don't need to just listen. Mm-hmm. I need to speak up. Uh, I need to walk away. Um, and, and to me, uh, it's to love consistently and to be consistent in my Christian moral mm-hmm. ethic. It's not to say, well, I'm passionate about this issue, but I'm not passionate about these other issues. So mm-hmm. that's just kind of bringing it more. So thank you so much for that. Let me, let me share this too. Sure. Let me share this. Push back on evil. And, and Steve, Steve hits it nail on the head. So... So let, let's, let's, let's jump real quick, dab our foot into the politics, and jump back out. So when we talk about Democrats and Republicans, right, and this whole idea, one, one of the things, one of the practical ways that City Light, you know, pursues unity is that we do not try to toe the line on partisanship. We just simply say, listen, sorry, guys, no right answers for you on this one. You're going to have to go to the throne of grace Seek help, all right? We're going we're gonna to navigate what's right and wrong, but, but in terms of telling you vote for that guy, mm-mm, we're not doing it. Go to the throne of grace, seek help. But this is what we tell them. No matter who you end up putting that ballot in for, you better push back on his evil or her evil. You better push back. And so, and so, what, and so what we mean by that is somebody might say, man, listen, I'm calculating this thing. I don't, I don't see the abortion issue moving on the needle no matter who I put in the, put in the uh, seat right now. And I just think that this person, this candidate is better. Okay, 
I'm not going to push hard, but you better be ready to fight for abortion on different levels. And then on the flip side, man, listen, I don't know if abortion, I don't know if this is going to move the abortion needle, but I can't risk it not moving the abortion needle. And so this person might not be ideal. As a matter of fact, I don't like him. But he might move the abortion needle, so I'm, or she might move the abortion needle. So ah, reluctantly, I'm going to put my ballot in. Okay, that's fine, right? But when that person starts propagating policies that are impacting your brothers and sisters, speak. Because what happens if you just stay silent in these partisan divides, right? You put your ballot in, you wave the flag for whatever group you're on the side of, but you don't speak against their evils, then it seems to become, or it seems to, or it appears rather, that your allegiance is more associated with the partisanship than it is with Jesus and his bride. Yeah. There's any questions from out here in the congregation? We got a few more in here, brother Buddy. I just had to get this because I've been been through it there, but I'm going to speak up on unity. Yes, sir. And I think we a whole lot of people has got unity as a wrong thought right into there. They think bringing unity is everyone in the church thinking together right into here there, which would be real great and everything. But we can get one person in a church that thinks all great there and everything, come up with an idea that just sounds 100% right into there and uh, can bring it up, talk it up there, and everybody can vote for it. We, we're 100% right in there. And uh, what it is, uh, they're not 100% right into there. They voted in something that might not be the will of God. We need to, when we have a deal come up there, any deal in here or any deal, that comes up to us right in there. We need to individually go home, put that up to the Lord, and until the Lord gives us an answer, we don't go one way or the other. And when we come back on in, when we get God's answer, we go by that. Now, you can have a 100% vote for one thing and it not be in God's will. We went through that with a church back there that I went through it with there, and we lost about two-thirds of the people. But the two, but the one third that was left, they just all of a sudden just started growing more and more and more and more and was more together than we ever was before. So when you lose some people, sometimes you're not losing very much right in there. But I think we all need to get ourselves back before we go with the crowd, get ourselves and ask God what he wants us to do. Amen. Amen. I think about, um, as many of you know, my favorite book is Philippians, and uh, Philippians 2 says, do nothing from selfish ambition. And I love to preach that verse, but then I have to remind myself, well, that's Mm. stepping on my toes now. Mm. (laughs) So, any other questions out there? Brother Dean. I don't need a mic. Oh, I should (laughs) have known. It's good to have you, brother. you loud and clear, Brother Dean. Why did Paul not seek to overthrow Mm. I didn't say what he said in Ephesians yeah. 6. That's a great point. How does Philemon fit in that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. It's a great point. I'm going, I'm going to Philemon, by the way. So, um, oh, goodness. So, I'll tell you what. I, I, we're not going re- to be able to read all of it. So, um, he does say in 1 Corinthians 7, you, be free, be free. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of things. One, we have to keep in mind um, that while Paul does not outlaw Roman Greco slavery, he does outlaw man-stealing. And man-stealing is outlawed in in the early, as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, man-stealing is outlawed. So chattel slavery, (laughs) you know, chattel slavery and Roman Greco slavery were actually two different things. You could pay your, you could literally buy your way out of Roman Greco slavery. You could not buy your way out of chattel slavery. 
um, your, your family, there was, a, there was an effort to preserve the family dynamic in Roman Greco. There was no effort whatsoever. As a matter of fact, there was an effort more so to destabilize the family, to separate and to divide uh, when you look at child slavery. Um, the other thing, though, and, and I said I wasn't going to do it, but I, actually we need to since you, since you mentioned Philemon. So um, I hope you guys are okay with us spending some time together. I, I, we, we don't, I, I'm, I'm leaving in the morning. Me and my family are leaving in the morning. So um, we, we, we came here ready to spend as much time with y'all as y'all are willing to spend with us, all right? Uh, but, but if you look at Philemon, uh, chapter one, well, there's only one chapter, says, I always, um, yeah, exactly. Verse eight, it says, for this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, is an elderly man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you from my son Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him both. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but out of your own free will. For, for perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your very self. Yes, brother, may I benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, since I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. And so Philemon is a powerful book for a lot of reasons. Because what Philemon does, the, the book of Philemon is what, it, what, what the book of Philemon does is it disrupts the institution without touching the institution. Um, it, literally, it literally, so Paul has a gentleman, Onesimus, who it's, you know, the theologians debate may have taken, taken some of his money, taken some of his master's money or run off or stole something rather from, from it from his master and kind of run off and... and and flee to Paul in hopes that he could find refuge. And, and once he flees to Paul, he ends up, you know, um, becoming one of Paul's disciples. And Paul disciples him, and he turns to the Lord, and um, his life is rejuvenated. And now he's preparing to send him back. That's why one of the reasons why Paul talks about restitution. Hey, if he owes you anything, whatever he owes you, I'm going to repay it. But notice that Paul is like, All right, I'm not going to really repay it. It's like, because <laughs> Paul says, I'm going to repay it. But don't forget, you owe me. You owe me way more than he, this guy probably owes you. You owe me your life, but I will repay it if you just ask for it. You know? but, but nevertheless, the idea that Onesimus is sent back, Paul says, I'm sending him back to you more than a slave now. I'm sending him back to you as your brother. So welcome him like you would welcome me. Notice the dynamic has completely changed now. Paul is no longer saying, hey, you know, he's just going to go back and go back to work like he normally does. No, he's saying, listen. This is a brother. The kingdom of God elevates in esteem or, or rises above earthly institutions. And so, yeah, I know he might be still your Greco-Roman slave. He's more than that when it comes to the kingdom. And so welcome him that way. Embrace him that way. Love him that way. So literally, Paul is disrupting the institution without even really ever touching the institution. Does that make sense? And so there's a very, there's a very common, common ethic there that we can see. And when you look at it, and this is why history is so important for Christianity, especially Christianity in America. When you look at the history of slavery in this country, we did the exact opposite at a particular time. What we did is what we, when, when, when people, when slave masters begin to realize that the, insti- that, that the kingdom institution was greater than the institutions of this earth. In other words, they, they realized, that, wait a second, these people are our brothers, and so we have to change the way we treat them if they get baptized and they get saved. Then they literally went back to the drawing board and said, okay, well, you can't baptize any of these guys. 
You can't baptize any of these women. And so, and so they literally, instead of saying, well, let's continue to preach and let's continue to appeal and let's continue to share the gospel, they said, no, this will mess up the economic engine if we get too many of them saved and then we have to start treating them differently. So let's just step back from this and not do that. And then they came up with the rule that, okay, well, yeah, they can do that. We can baptize them. And the church eventually said, well, baptize them and continue to preserve, preserve whatever institutions and traditions you have. And they said, okay, well, let's start baptizing them again. And so, and, so, and so literally the church, the church operated and was complicit in a lot of ways in this country in terms of the, the things that we saw. If the church would have stepped in, by the way, if the church would have stepped in and simply said, this is crazy. This is crazy. We cannot do this and call ourselves the people of God. Then slavery probably would have been disrupted in this country a lot quicker than it was. And it goes back to the, to the Galatians 2 sermon that I was preaching this morning that the church probably loved a lot of those people, but they feared their congregants so much that, that pastors wouldn't speak where they needed to. And so it kept the institution going. Right. Well, um, we've had a full night, and uh, we are not able to get to every question. There's about three or four in here, and I have about three or four in mine that I didn't get to get to as well. So, um, but the thing about this is this, this is going to allow us to continue the dialogue. Uh, maybe not every Sunday morning, but through breakfast, through meeting, through Sunday school classes. So let's continue the dialogue. Um, but actually, I do want to ask one particular question that I had texted you about. Yes, How can we pray for you and your family as you guys head back to Vicksburg? We want to continue our relationship with you, with the church there. Of course, you've got Andrew and Brittany hostage on us, um, but, but how can we pray for y'all? Amen. Um, sweetie, anything in particular? Okay. Um, so, so this, you know, what we're doing right now has um, in some ways become our normal. So having these discussions has become our normal and having these discussions in this setting has become our normal. Um, Y'all have been fantastic. Um, But it's still scary. It's all get out. And so um, prayer prayer for our courage. Um I was our, nervous this morning and I wasn't preaching. <laughs> <laughs> prayer, prayer for our prayer that, that the spirit would continue to embolden us um, because we just feel like it's worth it and it's necessary. But but it, but but the flesh is weak. Um, and, and so prayer for our boldness to continue to step in and lean into these conversations um, and prayer for our um, endurance that we don't. Um, that we don't grow fatigued because it, it can be a tiring conversation. Um, it can be a frustrating conversation to see uh, the saints of God miss each other so much um, and, and not be able to navigate, you know, what, what seems to be such a, such a minute issue on its surface and just not be able to navigate it. Um, and so prayer, prayer for our endurance um, that we would continue to, to, to run well. Um, and then prayer for city light. Yeah. Um, prayer for city light. Yeah. Well, let's pray together right now. Actually, um, let's gather together around the Crawfords. Why don't you guys come on up here, and uh, we'll gather together around you guys, and we'll pray as we're dismissed. And thank you for coming tonight, and uh, I really appreciate Oh, Brother Doug. All right. <laughs> well, I will tell you this. You need to thank his precious wife, Candy, because whenever I talked to him about, I don't know, six, nine months ago, he said, well, brother, I appreciate the invitation, but I need to talk to my wife because I've been known to overcommit myself on occasion. And so I want to make sure I don't do that. And so I told him at lunch, I said, we counted a high blessing that you came to here to be with us. And so maybe in about uh, 10 years. Oh, that's right. They got to come back to get their son eventually. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Let me pray. Gracious Father, you are so gracious to us. We thank you that we are your people. And so, Father, we pray as your people. We come before your throne of grace, asking for grace, asking for faith. Lord, we pray. Lord, yet we ask 
help us in our unbelief. So, Father, we are here gathered together in unity in one accord on Sunday evening. Father, keep us so Monday morning. Lord, we pray, Father, for the Crawford family, for Brian, for Candy, Brian Jr., and Elijah. Pray that you'll bless them physically, spiritually, emotionally. Meet every one of their needs, Father. Lord, we ask, Father, that you'll give them perseverance, courage, Father, fatigue. There is a unique, unique kind of fatigue that comes with ministry. I can't imagine the fatigue that comes with the particular ministry you've called them to. So bless them and strengthen them, Father. Lord, I pray that they will rise in the morning and say, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in it. So, Father, I thank you for the Crawfords. I thank you they've come and sacrificed to be with us, a small church in Madison. And, Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. Pray that you will bless them. Use them. Use the message, Father, that he preached this morning. May we share it with our friends and family members. And, Lord, may we be obedient to the call that you've given us to take up our cross daily and to follow you. So, Father, we ask, Lord, that we might obey you in all things. Lord, I thank you for my brother Brian. I pray that you will bless him and encourage him, strengthen him. I pray for him as he leads City Light Church. I pray that it will be a light upon a hill in Vicksburg, Mississippi, so that all the nations, all the people might say, who are they worshiping? And so that we might look at what you are doing and say, wow, God is good all the time. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.